Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Morullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous composers ever, and also, definitely I would say, the most famous Polish composer, Frédéric Chopin. Lived a pretty short life from 1810 to 1849, and he's also famous for having married the French novelist, George Sand. Of course, that's just a pseudonym. Her real name was Amantine Lucille Aurore Dupont. Now, Frédéric Chopin, as I said, is among the great composers, even though he mainly wrote for piano. It's not like he wrote a lot of orchestral music. He did write some piano concertos, so it's not like he didn't write for orchestra. But when you think of Chopin, you really think of solo piano music. And his music, like Mozart, like Beethoven, attained a perfection that was rarely equaled in the 19th century. Chopin and Liszt are kind of linked together as two of the greatest pianists of the 19th century, and also two of the greatest composers. Although, in terms of historical significance, I would have to say that Chopin definitely has an edge over Liszt. That being said, Liszt is also a very important composer, and if I had to name one of the most famous piano pieces of the entire 19th century, I would have to say it's Liszt's B minor sonata, one of the greatest piano compositions of the entire 19th century. But in his short life, Chopin composed a vast amount of music, some of the most memorable melodies of the 19th century. And together with Liszt, he really established what's known today as the Romantic piano style. And his compositions, like Liszt again, are extremely difficult to play. If you're going to tackle a you know, a large piano piece by Chopin, you have your work cut out for you. You have to be an advanced player, really, to get through one of his compositions. But thankfully, he didn't just write music for advanced players. You know, that's true of most of the composers that we know, Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Liszt. They wrote music for amateur players as well. And some of those pieces are known as preludes. Chopin wrote a set of 24 preludes, Now, that 24 might ring a bell if you've listened to some of my other podcasts. What's so special about the number 24? Well, if you recall, Bach wrote two sets of preludes and fugues called the Well-Tempered Clavier, and there are 24 pieces in each set because there are 24 keys, 12 major keys and 12 minor keys. That's because the chromatic scale has 12 notes. So if you write a piece in every single key, major or minor, it totals 24. So what Bach did in the Well-Tempered Clavier, which I talked about in an episode in the first season, he wrote a prelude and a fugue in every single key going up chromatically. C major, C minor. C sharp major, C sharp minor. D major, D minor, all the way through. Chopin did something very similar with his set of preludes, 24 preludes, except he didn't go up chromatically. He didn't go up by half step like C, C C-sharp, D. He went through what's called the circle of fifths. If I were to explain the circle of fifths, I would need an entire episode. So I will let you look that up on Google if you're interested. But it's just another way of organizing all 24 keys. Now, some of these preludes by Chopin are quite difficult to play, but others, you can get through them if you've only been playing piano for a year or so. They're really not that bad, and 
Some of them are quite simple. The shortest one is under a minute. That's the prelude in A major. Now, such a short piece was pretty revolutionary back then. First of all, if you wrote a prelude before Chopin wrote these preludes, it was usually an introductory piece to a larger piece. I mean, think of Bach's preludes and fugues. His preludes were pieces that were really meant to be introductory pieces to his more serious piece, the fugue. A prelude back then was considered an improvisatory piece, and it was certainly meant to be an introductory piece, not stand on its own. But Chopin changed that because his preludes are preludes to nothing. They're just pieces that stand on their own. And also, their brevity was very, very new. I mean, like I said, some of his preludes were extremely short. The one in A major is less than a minute. But it's a beautiful piece. It's really a gem of a piece. And it captured the attention of Randy Newman, the composer of the 1981 film Ragtime, directed by Milos Forman. Chopin's prelude in A major was used as part of that score, and it's a wonderful score by Randy Newman. So if you haven't seen Ragtime, I highly recommend it. Now, Chopin's prelude, of course, is not ragtime in style. For that, you would have to go to Scott Joplin. He's the king of ragtime. But still, that tiny little piece really helped to evoke the feeling of the film and also the time period in which the film takes place. That just goes to show you that if a tiny little piece of music like that captured the attention of the film producers, it's not so much the length of a piece that makes it beautiful or important. It's the substance. A poem of only a few lines can have just as much of a powerful impact on the heart as does a poem of many pages. It's the spirit or the substance of the poem that really counts. Now, some of Chopin's preludes are kind of long, you know, a couple minutes, but that's considered still a short piece, and some of them are very difficult to play. But if you're a beginning piano student, I wouldn't try to play his polonaises or his sonatas or etudes. Uh, you're going to have a rough time with those. I would definitely start with the preludes. They're, they're workable. The prelude that I'd like to look at today is of moderate difficulty. It's not too bad. And for a professional pianist, this one is considered actually pretty easy. It, it's the one in G major. And for illustrative purposes, I want to talk about what it is about this prelude that makes it a Chopin prelude. It's not a free-for-all. You can't just write whatever you want. There is some kind of a scheme, even though they do sound kind of improvisatory in nature. There is a formal scheme. So let me talk about the formal scheme first, and then we'll see how it's worked into this particular prelude. In general, this is what Chopin does. He focuses on one musical idea, because they're short pieces. So he really wants to just focus on one motif or one musical idea. And usually the piece is divided into two. Not always, but many times there are two parts. The first part is shorter, and it ends on what's called a half cadence. Now, what is that? Well, first of all, a cadence is a musical articulation of some sort. You could think of it like punctuation in a sentence. A half cadence is kind of analogous to either a comma or a semicolon. It's an unfinished sentence. It's the first part of the sentence. You could almost think of it as a question, whereas a authentic cadence is considered the answer and the period at the end of the sentence. 
Okay, so when you have a half cadence, think of a chord that can be a question mark. If you've heard any of my prior episodes, I'm thinking of a particular chord that's associated with a question mark or tension or an unresolved idea. If you said dominant, you are right. The dominant triad, remember a triad is simply a chord with three notes. The dominant triad is the tension chord in tonal music. So if you want a half cadence, you're going to want to end on the dominant. So that's considered the question part of the prelude, the first part of the prelude. The second part, Chopin has to roll up his sleeves and do some musical magic because he doesn't want to do exactly what he did in the first part. That would be kind of boring. He's focusing the piece on one idea, but in the second part, he wants to make some changes to make it more interesting. And one of the things that you can do is you can lengthen the second part. If the first part is eight measures long, make the second part 10, 11, 12, or even longer. So you have to find ways to extend the second part, but it has to be a suitable answer to the first part. In other words, it has to be based on the same idea. And what you want to do is the tension that was set up in the first part, which ends on that tense chord called the dominant, you want to extend that tension in the second part. You want to make the listener wait and wait and wait a little bit longer for the culmination of that tension. In other words, you want to make them wait for the final cadence. The final cadence is an authentic cadence. An authentic cadence is a cadence not on the dominant, but on the tonic. The tonic is associated with stability, or your home key. Now, there are variations to this scheme, but that's the basic idea of what happens in a Chopin prelude. He sets up tension in the first part, usually ending on a half cadence, a cadence on the dominant. And then he extends the second part to prolong that tension before the end of the piece. Now, there are some preludes that have a completely different scheme. For instance, the very famous raindrop prelude, it's nicknamed. It's in three parts, A, B, A, ternary form, where the B section is very closely related to the first section, the A section. It's not immediately apparent, but they are related. But even though this is an extended form, this is a longer prelude than some of the other preludes, it still relies on the same procedure of making you wait. You have to wait for that final cadence at the very end of the piece. And in general, that's what romantic composers of the 19th century like to do. They like to set up tonalities that take you away from the home key using advanced harmonies like chromatic harmonies, and they take you pretty far afield, and that increases the tension. It makes you wait for the cadence. And sometimes you have to wait quite a while, for instance, in a longer piece like a symphony, or a piano sonata. So let's first listen to the entire prelude in G major by Chopin. And we're going to listen to the whole thing because like the A major prelude, this one's only about a minute long. And then we're going to talk about how the piece is constructed, how Chopin is able to prolong the tension. So here's Vladimir Ashkenazi playing the prelude in G major on a London CD.
Oh, there's some pretty fancy finger work in that left hand. So first, the piece starts out with just two measures of left hand introduction, which are those fast notes you hear in the left hand. And then the main melody comes in, and the first part of the piece is nine measures long. It's really eight measures, but Chopin extends it by one measure by extending the half cadence. So the first part, which is nine measures long, ends with a question mark, or a half cadence, which is the five chord. To be more exact, it's a five-seven chord, which means it's a dominant chord, but it has an extra note called the seventh. So let's listen to the first part. Now, the second part of the piece, in other words, the answer to that question, is almost twice as long. It's 15 measures long. And then he finishes with a little ending or a codetta, which neatly wraps up the piece. Now, how did Chopin do that? How did he extend the second part of the piece so that it was almost twice as long as the first half? Well, the second half begins very much like the first half did, but then he departs from what he did in the beginning. He actually spends eight measures focusing on what's called the subdominant harmony. Now, let me explain. The dominant, you already know the dominant is associated with tension. The dominant is built on the fifth degree or the fifth note of the scale. The subdominant is built on the fourth degree of the scale. So in other words, in the key of G, we're in the key of G, the dominant is the fifth note of the scale, which is D. The subdominant is the fourth note of the scale, which is C. And the subdominant has many different functions, but one of the things that the subdominant can do is it could lead to the dominant. So in other words, you could have subdominant leading to the dominant, and then the dominant leads right back to the tonic. And that's exactly what happens in this piece. Music theorists use Roman numerals for all of these chords. So the subdominant is called four because it's built on the fourth degree of the scale. The dominant is called five, Roman numeral five. And the tonic is one because it's the tonic. It's the first degree of the scale. But you don't have to worry about that. The main thing is that Chopin extends the second half of this piece by really prolonging the subdominant, and that prolongation creates tension because we're waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the end of the piece, which is the dominant followed by the authentic cadence at the end, which is the cadence on the tonic. And like I said before, when you have a cadence on the tonic, that's your home key. That's the key of G, and that's like the period at the end of the sentence. So what I want to do now is I want to play for you that section in the second part that's all focused on one chord, basically. It's all focused on the subdominant. So think about that. In focusing eight measures on this one chord, He's extending the second part because those eight measures are almost as long as the entire first part of the piece. Remember, minus the introduction, the entire first part of the piece was nine measures long. And he did not 
have the subdominant, that chord, in the first part. So this is a new chord in the piece that he's focusing on for quite a long time, considering the length of the entire composition. So with that in mind, let's listen to the entire second section, including the ending, the codetta. Not a very complicated piece, theoretically, but it's a lesson on what you can do with a, a minute piece, how you could create tension and make it really interesting. And also, as with anything that Chopin writes, the texture or the interaction between the parts is very interesting to listen to. What I mean by that is that the left hand is playing all these really fast notes, but the right hand has these long held out notes. It's a very lyrical melody, whereas the left hand is very frenetic. But they are related, and let me explain how that is. What I'm going to do first is play the left hand at a slow tempo so you could hear the notes a little bit better. Now, let me just single out some of those notes. So after the first note, you hear this. The first note that I just played was a D, and that it ascends to a B. Well, that's what the melody does. It starts on a D, and right after that is a G and a B at the same time. So again, the left hand went from a D, ended up on a B. That's really what the melody did. It started on a D and ended up on a B for the highest note. What happens next in the left hand? Well, it just goes down by step. E, D, C, B. Like this. What happens with the melody? You guessed it. First it goes E, D. followed by CB, although it's higher. What I really want you to get out of that explanation is that the melody is a rhythmic augmentation of the left hand, meaning that the left hand notes are fast notes. When I say a rhythmic augmentation, that means the notes are longer in duration. When you augment something in music, you're multiplying the note values, making the note values longer. So whereas the left hand is playing these really fast notes called 16th notes, the melody is derived from those 16th notes, but the note values are longer. In other words, a rhythmic augmentation. This is the kind of procedure that I've spoken about in a lot of my episodes from both season one and season two. Great composers are really good at finding a way to tie together disparate elements of a composition, elements sometimes that, at first hearing, you don't think they have anything to do with each other, 
But there's a hidden relationship. There's some kind of association that ties all those elements together and makes it a cohesive whole, even though you don't notice it right away. You really have to delve in, into the music to understand and appreciate these associations. It's kind of like the last episode when I was talking about Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on the Theme of Paganini, where I played the main theme by Paganini, and then I played one of Rachmaninoff's variation, the very famous 18th variation, and the two sound very, very different. Upon first hearing, you don't think they have anything to do with each other, but it turns out that the variation is just that. It's derived 100% from the theme, which I explained in the last episode. So I hope you listen to that. And I hope you tune in and listen to the next episode, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.